Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. The show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Scott here. January is here, and that usually means cold weather. The advantage of cold weather is that it does tend to dry out the atmosphere a bit, making for crisper viewing. The disadvantage is that it's cold weather. But there are sights to see that can be quite easy, so I steel myself against the cold, putting on a heavy coat, gloves, and stocking cap, and head out. After all the excitement at the end of December about the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, it might be natural to look for these two to start my viewing. Unfortunately, by the time darkness comes on, they are already moved over the horizon. One might glimpse the two near the southwestern horizon, the direction of the setting sun this time of year, at about 6 in the evening, but a clear, flat horizon in that direction may be necessary to do so. The only other planet one can spot in January is the planet Mars. Mars is placed high up in the southern sky as darkness falls. Though not as bright as it was this past autumn when we were passing it in our faster orbit, and therefore closer to it, it has the advantage of being located among some pretty dim stars. It is currently located between stars of Pisces the fish and Aries the ram. The closest bright star lies east of it, the star Aldebaran in Taurus the bull. So spotting Mars should not be too big of a problem at this time. So, without many planets to look for, thoughts can turn toward constellations. And, as we are in the winter sky, there are more than a few that stand out, both because of their shapes, and they contain or are made almost completely of bright stars. In the southeast, an easily found pattern of stars can be seen. The bright pattern of Orion the Hunter is well above the horizon in the evening skies of January. Throughout the rest of winter and on into spring, he will be seen to march across the southern sky before disappearing altogether later this spring. What stands out most for many people is a line of three stars. Each are quite bright, and a line of three stars close together is something not easily visible in the sky. These three stars are a belt worn at the waist of Orion. A dimmer line of stars just south of the belt mark a sword tucked there. 10 by 50 binoculars or a small telescope will reveal that the middle star is a gas cloud called the Orion Nebula. Here, new stars are forming, and their output causes the surrounding gas to glow like a neon sign. To finish up Orion, two bright stars north of the belt mark his shoulders. Two bright stars south of the belt mark his knees. If the skies are dark, that is, there is not much light pollution, a small grouping of three stars midway between and up from the shoulders mark his head. Collectively, not too difficult to see as a human figure there among those stars. Another reason I like to find Orion is that, like the Big Dipper, combinations of stars in Orion lead to other stars in other constellations. This is particularly true about the belt stars. A line extended beyond the belt stars up and to the west lead to Aldebaran. This is the brightest star in the constellation known as Taurus the Bull. 
Taurus is another constellation that's somewhat easy to picture, at least as far as his face and head. Aldebaran is pictured as one of his eyes. Near to Aldebaran can be seen a V-shaped group of stars with Aldebaran at one end or one arm of the V. The V-shaped pattern is a cluster of stars traveling together in space called the Hyades Star Cluster. Aldebaran happens to lie along the line of sight toward that cluster, but isn't part of it. Aldebaran is closer to Earth, so this gives sort of a 3D effect with a little imagination. A bit west of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. They also travel together as a group in our galaxy and are farther away from us than the Hyades, therefore making an even more 3D imaginative effect in the works. They also mark the shoulder of Taurus the Bull. If the line of stars marking each arm of the V-shaped Hyades is extended, two more relatively bright stars are reached, marking the tip of the horns of Taurus. So basically we're seeing the front half of this bull. As prominent as Orion and Taurus are, and located next to each other in the sky, the ancient Greeks and Romans did not seem to create a story involving both. It would seem kind of natural, one being a hunter, the other being the hunted. Maybe a task for modern storytellers. By now, enough time may have passed to put the belt stars back to work to help find another bright star. Traveling southeast along the belt stars, we arrive at Sirius, the brightest star in our skies. Sirius is also the brightest star in the constellation Canis Major, Latin for the Big Dog. To see more of this constellation requires a bit later stay in the night sky or perhaps a visit later in the evening after heading in to warm up. The shoulder stars of Orion can also be used to find a bright star. A line from the dimmer Bellatrex to the brighter Betelgeuse continuing eastward leads to Procyon. Procyon is the brightest star in a small constellation known as Canis Minor, the small dog. By small, I mean this star and one other somewhat dimmer star, for the most part, make up this constellation. Farther over in the eastern sky are a pair of stars of about the same brightness. These are the stars Castor and Pollux. They make up the heads of the brothers collectively called Gemini the Twins. Castor and Pollux are not only the names of the stars, but the names of each of the twins. A line of stars stretching back in the direction of Orion mark their bodies. A good star map can help with this. To make sure I haven't left out any star, I recall a pattern that can be made up of the bright winter stars called the Winter Six or the Winter G. To make this large figure of bright stars, start with Aldebaran and imagine a line moving eastward toward Castor and Pollux. Continue this on to Procyon and Sirius. Next would be Rigel, marking the knee of Orion. To make a figure of a G, you would either go directly to Betelgeuse and stop, or even go up to Bellatrex and across the shoulders of Orion to Betelgeuse and stop. To make the figure of a six, go to Rigel and loop to Betelgeuse and then on to Procyon again. As winter moves on to spring, these stars will be better placed in the southern skies, making imaginative drawings perhaps a bit more comfortable under less cold skies. Still, these stars seem to pop under the drier, cold skies of January and making the patterns of which they are part a bit easier to try. And there's this new astronomical phenomenon that was recently observed by Canadian astrophysicists 
It's called a fast radio burst. Now, these bursts of radio signals are coming to us from a very distant spiral galaxy, and that in itself is not really all that unusual. Although no one really knows what causes these radio bursts, I can tell you that they've already discovered about a 100 known fast radio bursts out there coming to us from different parts of the sky. But only 10 of these radio bursts have been found to repeat themselves. But earlier this year, they found one fast radio burst that not only repeats the signal, the bursts, but it repeats itself on schedule. It's every 16 days that the radio burst is occurring, and it blasts one or two bursts per hour for something like four days. And then it'll go silent for 12 days, and then starts repeating the hourly bursts again. Now, sometimes that pattern is broken. It's not that the bursts always start 12 days later, but when the bursts do happen, they appear to be repeated on this one burst per hour for four days schedule. Now, there are several theories to try to explain what causes this schedule of bursts, and none of them involve aliens making music or aliens sending us a message or anything like that. Perhaps the source of this fast radio burst is orbiting around a star or even a black hole, and that object blocks the signal when it's passing behind them. Or it's also possible that stellar winds might be either boosting the radio blasts or blocking the radio blasts on a regular basis. And then there's a third possibility that this star or whatever it is, it's a standalone object that rotates around, and so we only detect the radio burst when the active side of it rotates around to face Earth. No one really knows what's going on here. As for what it is, the most popular theory is that the source of these bursts is a highly magnetic neutron star called a magnetar. Although I know that sounds like a character from one of those Transformer movies. Now that they found this one, scientists are looking for more of these repetitive fast radio bursts in the sky. Finding more of them might provide evidence for what's generating that burst and what's regulating their repetition. You've already heard today from Professor Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College, but Scott's going to be on the air again today. But first, I wanted to tell you a little bit about the telescope he'll be discussing. It's called SOFIA, which stands for Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, SOFIA. And basically, SOFIA is a powerful telescope that's fitted into a Boeing 747 airplane and flown at an altitude of some 41,000 feet. That's about a mile above where most commercial aircraft fly. And at that altitude, the telescope is above most of the Earth's atmosphere. Now, this telescope works at the infrared wavelengths, which is electromagnetic radiation that's longer than what we could even detect with the naked eye. And one of the things that absorbs infrared radiation is water. And that's what Scott Miller is going to tell you about. But there are some other cool things that have been discovered with this flying telescope. Sophia found the first type of molecule to be formed in the universe after the Big Bang, it's called helium hydride. 
It discovered our closest planetary system. It's been used to study the magnetic fields that exist around black holes and offered an explanation for how the magnetic fields streaming around the black hole in the center of our galaxy might be keeping that one relatively quiet compared to most black holes. This flying telescope found organic molecules in a distant nebula that were being converted into larger, more complex molecules when hit with radiation from nearby stars. Sophia took an exquisite photo of the inside of our Milky Way galaxy and found signs of collisions between exoplanets more than 300 million light-years away. Here's a short description of Sophia put out by NASA, and then that'll be followed by Scott Miller telling us about research using Sophia that was just published in the journal called Nature Astronomy on October 26, 2020. think of Sophia mostly as sort of catching light. Day after day we can get up and do these missions and really do really cutting edge uh, astronomy in the infrared spectrum. Sophia is an observatory and like other observatories around the world it can do a lot of different science. A lot of those observatories are on the tops of mountains around 13 or 14,000 feet. Even when we have a ground-based telescope in a perfect place sometimes it doesn't get any data because the clouds come in. Being able to fly over all of that is just a tremendous asset. What happens is in the upper atmosphere of the Earth, as the light comes down, you know, from some astronomical object, very little of that light is able to pass all the way down to the ground. So what Sophia does is it flies above the bulk of that water in the atmosphere. But Sophia can fly at 43,000 feet, more than double the height of all of the other observatories in the world. And that is above 90% of the water vapor, and that's a position that is necessary for astronomers to do infrared astronomy. So space-based observatories have some really unique aspects to them. They're always in space, they're very cold, they can observe around the clock day in and day out. The spacecraft, the demand on low weight, low power consumption are very extreme. So. In an airborne observatory, you have a lot of power, a lot of space available. We can carry instruments that are hundreds of pounds. We can give those instruments much more power than you can generate from solar collectors in space. Uh, we're not limited to the minimum weight that launch vehicles require to put something into space. We can fix those instruments day after day. The airplane comes home, we can repair them. It's very, very challenging to ever repair anything in space, and it's been done very, very few times. The plane provides this motion as the telescope provides this motion, and together you're actually able to track a target as it moves across the sky as it's rising and setting. Not only does it have to be aware of time and position, but it's also got to be making the right motions across the surfaces of the Earth so that combined motions allow us to be able to lock onto the object over periods of a couple of hours. One of the powerful benefits that Sophia brings us is the ability to go chasing these occultations in a way that no other observatory can do. An occultation is basically a situation where a planet or an object of interest moves in front of a background star. We observed a Pluto occultation, so that was where Pluto fell in our line of sight with a background star and made that star's light blink out very momentarily. They modeled where that shadow was going to be and we flew this airplane at roughly 500 miles an hour 
to catch a shadow that was going across the surface of the Earth at 53,000 miles an hour. Simply by looking at the way that the background light blinked out uh, tells us something about the shape of the object, whether that object has an atmosphere or not, and you can even determine things like how the atmosphere's temperature and pressure vary from the ground all the way up to the top of that atmosphere on that object. You are limited as to what parts of the sky you can actually observe uh, when you're in the northern hemisphere. So deployments out of our home base here in Palmdale gives us access to one half of the sphere. And when we go down to New Zealand, we'll have access to a whole new set of objects, a whole new part of the sky. Infrared astronomy allows you to peer into the core of really cold gas clouds where the stars are starting to form. Planets, comets, dust particles. So look at star formation in extreme regions. These things, because of their cold temperatures, happen to radiate most of their energy at these infrared wavelengths that Sophia studies. SOFIA actually has several different instruments. The science instruments receive the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, the light, through the telescope. Instruments mean cameras or photometers or spectrometers. Uh, the telescope without instruments is totally useless. We have a whole team uh, whose job it is to prepare the instruments and do a very precise movement, a choreographed uh, movement of one instrument off the airplane, another one on. Some of them make pictures that will look a lot like something that would have come out of a digital camera, but of course at a different wavelength. Others will not look like a picture at all. One of the biggest challenges, of course, is we're putting a large hole in the side of the airplane. The telescope in total is uh, 17 metric tons, and there's an additional three tons distributed in electronic racks all over the aircraft. The telescope has a certain level of precision. The instruments require a certain level of precision and accuracy in order to conduct the science. And the engineering challenge of providing that stability on an airplane that's flying and encountering turbulence is a significant challenge. We had major structural modifications that had to happen. We had to add an additional bulkhead uh, just forward of the telescope so that we can maintain a pressure area where people can work. And then the aft area is vented to the outside as we open the door. The telescope is operated when a large door is open, so the environment is not very benign. The telescope is something that is designed to free float. It floats on a spherical bearing, and that allows the telescope to be somewhat isolated from the movement of the aircraft. Inside Sophia, it's like flying on any other airliner. Planning for about a 10-hour mission, hopefully about eight and a half hours worth of science out of that. We do pre-flight checks on all the airplane systems and all the observatory systems, fuel up the airplane. We go into a crew brief in the late afternoons where the entire team that's going to fly on the airplane gets together, talks about the objectives for the flight, status of all the systems, the weather, and the mission plan ahead. The team goes out and does their pre-flight checks on the airplane, start engines, we take off, climb to altitude, and do whatever mission's planned for that night. Usually it's about a 10-hour flight. We know before we even get on the plane what objects are going to be looked at, at exactly what time in the flight they're going to be looked at. It's all sort of planned out and choreographed like a complicated dance routine.
Sophia is a unique blend of aeronautical capabilities, science engineering in the form of a state-of-the-art telescope, and then cutting-edge science instrument. On board, there's probably about 20 to 30 personnel, along with USRA personnel, our science support personnel, or mission ops. We also have multiple NASA centers, NASA Ames, primarily responsible for the science, and NASA Dryden responsible for the aircraft operations. It takes that total group of expertise together that makes SOFIA an operational telescope. Sometimes I think that my kids think science is done by some person sitting in a lab or up on a mountain with a telescope all by themselves. Having them see that it's really such a team effort, I think it's important. Sophia Science is driven by the demands and the imagination of the community. The thing I get satisfaction over is seeing a team succeed themselves. And whether that be technicians installing electrical components or scientists uh, getting the data that they receive or a teacher getting a good experience on board um, to take back to their classrooms. So Sophia is considered to be an international resource to be used by the global community of astronomers. We hope to truly inspire students, scientists, engineers, mechanics, pilots, so anyone in a great school classroom right now, depending on what their interest is, they can see themselves operating SOFIA in the next 10 to 15 years. There are a lot of open science questions that have been open for, quite frankly, a very long time. Creativity and inquiry is what's going to lead SOFIA to discovery and to answering a lot of outstanding questions over the next 20 years of its life. Scott here. Back in late October, NASA announced that its Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, or SOFIA, had confirmed the existence of water on the sunlit surface of the Moon. News agencies ran with this, but in many cases did not provide context for the discovery. Now that all the hype has settled in light of an even more important event now playing out in America, I thought I would revisit this topic to provide a bit more information. This is not the first time that evidence for some form of water has been found on the Moon. Over the last 20 years, orbital missions and an impactor mission have provided evidence for the presence of ice in craters where permanent shadowing exists. In other words, these would be cold traps since the sun's light never reaches within these limited regions inside those craters. The temperatures have been found to be about minus 249 degrees Celsius, that is, 249 degrees below the freezing point of water. That translates into minus 416 degrees Fahrenheit. Most of these craters were in the polar regions of the Moon. The Moon has only a slight tip in its rotation axis, about 1.54 degrees. Compare this to the 23.5 degree tilt of Earth's rotation axis, which is the principal cause of our change in seasons. For the Moon, this means its seasonal changes, and therefore the exposure to sunlight, especially deep polar craters, is minimal. So based on these discoveries, there has been some speculation about how water could be delivered to the lunar surface and become trapped in the shadow areas of these polar craters. Common impacts, or micrometeorites, could be the source, for example. Still, the thinking was that in broader areas of the Moon's surface, those in which craters can be illuminated by the Sun, water likely did not exist. This would be consistent with some of the material brought back from the Apollo missions, for example. 
several spacecraft, the Cassini mission on its close pass of the moon on its way to Saturn, the Deep Impact Comet mission, and India's Chandrayaan-1 mission all found evidence for hydration in the sunnier regions. The question remained, was the hydration due to water or possibly hydroxyl, which is an ion consisting of a single oxygen and single hydrogen atom? The success of the SOFIA mission was to help distinguish between these two possible hydration possibilities. According to Paul Hertz, director of the Astrophysics Division of the Science Mission Directorate at NASA, we had indications that H2O, the familiar water we know, might be present on the sunlit side of the moon. Now we know it is there. This discovery challenges our understanding of the lunar surface and raises intriguing questions about resources relevant for deep space exploration. But how much is there? What Sophia has actually detected are water molecules in Clavius Crater, one of the largest craters visible from Earth, located in the moon's southern hemisphere. Data from this location reveal water in concentrations of 100 to 412 parts per million roughly equivalent to a 12-ounce bottle of water, trapped in a cubic meter of soil spread around the lunar surface. To put that in perspective, the Sahara Desert has about 100 times the amount of water detected by Sophia. So, not lots of water, but water nonetheless. And this opens up the question I mentioned earlier as to the how. How was the water created in the first place, especially in the harsh, airless surface of the moon? Some proposals include micrometeorites that rain down onto the surface of the moon. These can carry small amounts of water, depositing it there upon impact. Perhaps it is some sort of chemical process whereby the sun delivers hydrogen to the surface of the moon. This hydrogen can cause a chemical reaction with minerals on the surface of the moon that happen to contain oxygen, forming hydroxyl. This hydroxyl might then be converted to water by radiation given off by the micrometeorite impacts. Of course, once formed, it must stay put. Not easy in an airless environment. Some proposals include the formation of bead-like structures, which can trap the water in the soil, created, again, by the action of the micrometeorites. Or perhaps the water is simply hidden between grains in the lunar soil. Shadows formed in the direct light of the sun, for example or there may be some other yet-to-be-discovered process. One of the reasons this discovery is important is that we as a nation and as a world see our future in space travel. Water is a precious resource. Hauling it is expensive. Harvesting it would be less so. We have a mission planned to return people to the moon in 2024, NASA's Artemis program. Learning if the water is an easily accessible resource could help in the success of establishing a sustainable human presence on the moon. Of course, it does remain to be seen how accessible the water is. Follow-up missions with SOFIA are planned, which may shed more light on the storage and production processes as it looks at other areas on the moon's surface. Orbital missions will attempt to map the areas where water may exist on the moon. But at the end of the day, what this really tells us is that we have lots more to learn about our nearest neighbor. And what we learn will tell us much more about our own planet, its origins, and how we fit into this vast universe of ours. Thanks, Scott. And before we end the show this week, I wanted to tell you about a free online panel discussion 
put on by the Peggy Notebart Nature Museum in Chicago. It's called Tainted Knowledge, Reconciling the Scientific Field's Problematic Past. The panel discussion includes a conservation biologist and three science educators, including a Native American and an herbalist. And the stated goal of this event is to discuss how the history of science intersects with racist, sexist, and colonialist attitudes. So it might be an intriguing discussion. It's going to be held on Thursday, January 14th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And to register for this free online panel discussion, you have to go to the eventbrite.com page. That's E-V-E-N-T, event, B-R-I-T-E dot com. And then just search for Tainted Knowledge. Thanks for listening to Bench Talk, The Weekend Science. Happy New Year, and see you all next week.